0: 1 Corinthians chapter eleven is where we'll be this morning. And by God's grace, we should finish up uh, chapter eleven. This is um, in the New Testament, one of the the clearest and one of the only few places in the Bible where the Lord's Supper is explained and is talked about. We talked about that last week when we met together, and so we walked through the different understandings of the Lord's Supper, uh, what it means, what it it doesn't mean in the Gospels. The Lord's Supper is is talked about, but it's just kind of a recording of the Passover and Jesus uh, taking the bread and kind of reinterpreting it uh, to, to be what he's going to go do and our understanding of that. This passage comes to us because there was a problem at First Baptist Corinth. Uh, there was an issue that was taking place. And so Paul, trying to address that church, brings up the Lord's Supper, and he's like, this is something you're not doing very well. And he tells them what they're doing. They're, they're taking the Lord's Supper, what they call the Lord's Supper, but Paul says, you're not actually taking the Lord's Supper. Um, what they were doing was the, the rich were going to one area, they were sitting the poor to the other area, and then the rich were just feasting. Uh, while the poor were starving. They were getting drunk. It became kind of a party, and there were two classes, two groups that had developed within the church because of this. There's all sorts of divisions within this church, which is why one of the big themes of 1 Corinthians is unity in the church. And so now Paul has brought us to the Lord's Supper. Uh, Last week I intentionally went slow, um, because there's a lot to cover with the Lord's Supper, and this is one of the few places in the entire Bible that if you work, work book by book, verse by verse, expos- expositional preaching, exegetical preaching, that you get to the Lord's Supper. Outside of this, you really don't come across it much outside, in, unless you're in the Gospels. And so today we're going to look at the second half of the Lord's Supper in a way that's important for us to see. God gave us two ordinances. Jesus gives us two ordinances. He gives us uh, baptism, which is where we go public with our faith. It's where you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You, You get dunked underwater. You get brought back up. That's where you tell the church, I'm a Christian now. That's the public profession of faith is baptism. You do it once. You're baptized once, then it's done. And the Lord's Supper is this reoccurring ordinance that we take that continually reminds us. It's almost a rededication or a recommitment to Christianity, to the gospel, over and over. The way I like to think about it is I I like to think of baptism as the front door that brings you into the house, and the Lord's Supper is the dinner table that you eat at regularly. So what we know about the Lord's Supper, just to summarize, last stuffs quickly, it's symbolic. It is not the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's meant to be a memorial, a reminder of Jesus' life that he lived for us, his body that he gave up for us, his, his blood of the new covenant that he died for us. It's to remind us of the gospel that we take the Lord's Supper when the church is gathered together. We don't do it with ministries. We do it when we're gathered together so that when we take the Lord's Supper, we look, you can look across the pew. You can look at the pew in front of you. You can look at the pew behind you. If you're going to look behind you, do it subtly so they don't know you're staring at them, but you can look at the people that you're taking the Lord's Supper with. That's a big chunk of the Lord's Supper as it brings unity. And then I, I didn't bring this up last week because I don't there's a lot of debate on it within certain places, but it, I don't think it's, it's that big of a, a debate. We, do, we take the Lord's Supper often. You don't have to take it every Sunday. There's some denominations that, that will do it every Sunday. There's some churches that will do it s- every Sunday. All the text really says is as often as you do this. So when you take the Lord's Supper, it should feel often. It should feel something like we normally do. So here we started doing it the last Sunday of each month. So that's uh, like 12 times a year. And then we'll throw in one every now and then on Advent or something. So, all of that kind of sets up for what Paul's going to tell us uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's start in verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body... Eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, Welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instruction about other matters whenever I come. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. What a blessing it is that we can come together, that we can gather in a building. Uh, the building is, is not your church, God, but but you have blessed us with the building that can protect us from the elements, that we can have a heater that runs and pews, that have cushions, that we can have a sound system that amplifies, God, that we can have all of these amenities, all these things that help us but aren't worship. Help us to understand why we gather. Gotta pray as we walk through the Lord's Supper that you'd help us to understand what the Lord's Supper does for us. That when taken correctly, when understood rightly, it makes much of you, Jesus. It's not about us being perfect. It's not about us having our life together. It's not about what we do, God. It reminds us of what you've done for us. God, you've given us this meal to celebrate if we love you and we hate our sin help us grow in you i pray god as we work through this text that you would speak to our hearts encourage us where we need encouragement convict us where we need conviction and it's in your name we pray amen let's start back in verse 27 so then Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So there's several things for us to look at here. Remember, last time we gathered, we talked about the Lord's Supper. We have those divisions that were taking place. That's huge on Paul's mind, and it's huge in the book of Corinthians that this church was fighting that they had all of these fractions that were taking place. And so Paul warns these people and it's a warning we need to heed. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cu- yeah, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Well, how were the Corinthians doing this? I mentioned it earlier, right? They, they had two different groups of people. They had the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, and they would have the rich would either gather in the dining room or they would come a little bit early, but most likely they gathered in the dining room and then they would sit in the poor out to one of the other rooms or outside while they had this feast, this massive meal where they fed each other and they ate and they laughed and they had kind of this party. And if you brought a good enough casserole to the potluck, you could be into the party. But if your casserole wasn't good enough, you got kicked to the outside. That's kind of the Baptist way of, of thinking about it. And what Paul is saying is that's not only not the Lord's Supper, but that's unloving, that's unkind, that's not Christian. That's not how you care for one another. That's not how you encourage one another. That's not how you love one another. It's bringing an unnecessary divide, an unnecessary division into the church. And so Paul tells the people, examine yourself. Examine yourself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink the cup. Forever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so what Paul is saying is there is a way to take the Lord's Supper that's wrong, to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So examine your life, test your life, look at your life, look at yourself, look at the church, and make sure you're taking the Lord's Supper in a way that honors God, that glorifies Jesus, that makes much of the gospel. Because there is a way to do this wrong. And if you do this wrong, what Paul tells us is you eat and you drink without recognizing the body. This is the big question. What is the body here? But it doesn't say the body and the blood like it does before. What is the body? Well, we know from the text of Scripture it's the body of Christ. Whether we're talking about the physical body of Christ, when we take the Lord's Supper, that we remember the gospel, we remember that Jesus died for our sake, he died in our place. If it's the physical body of Jesus, which is true, we should remember that when we take the Lord's Supper. That's what Jesus tells us. But there's another body in the Bible that Jesus talks about. The body of Christ is in the church, brothers and sisters, which they were also violating at this church. They weren't remembering the body when they took the Lord's Supper. They were remembering the body parts that they liked, but the poor kidneys were thrown outside. No, nothing. Just a bunch of appendixes in here. It's twofold that we remember the body. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? This is symbolic. There's, there's, We're not re-sacrificing Jesus every time we take the Lord's Supper. That's not what the scriptures tell us. Instead, what it tells us is it's reminding us of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. We were talking about this in the, the kids' Sunday school class this morning, that the song that they sing in heaven, it's one of my favorite things about scripture, the song they sing in Revelation is, worthy is the lamb that was slain. They still, we still sing about the gospel of Jesus Christ 20, 30, 40,000 years after we've been in heaven will still be singing about the gospel of jesus christ it's not something that we hold to now and we forget about later it's not something that we start our faith with and never come back with it's what sustains us it's what holds us it's what our life is centered on so when we take the lord's supper we absolutely and we certainly remember the body of jesus christ it's far more than a stale cracker and some juice that we stick in a cup and just get a snack until we can get over to mcdonald's or whatever your choice of food is afterwards If it's McDonald's, let's talk. You need better choices. It means something. And I think in our part of the world, most people, most Christians would agree with us on that part. Yes, and amen, we should remember Jesus. But if we think about the secondary implications of this, it's we remember the body is in the church. The same Jesus that saved you is the same Jesus that saved me is the same Jesus that saved your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we may not like our brothers and sisters all the time, and they won't like you all the time either, and they won't like me, but we still love each other. We still grow in Christ, so that when we take the Lord's Supper, it's this continuing reminder, this continuing recommitment to the gospel, that the gospel is not just some theological idea that people study about in their ivory towers, but when it the rubber hits the road, we don't have to really deal with it. No, no, the gospel means it permeates your life, and it means the people who are a part of your church, the people who are members of the church with you, who go to the church with you, that you look at, and you love, and you care for, and you remember them when you take the Lord's Supper. You remember that God has placed you in their life to disciple them, and them in your life to disciple. You to grow each other, to sanctify each other, to push each other, to follow after Jesus more and more and better and better. That we don't neglect the gathering. And so we examine ourselves. This is where it's hard because we have to be honest. and We have to be honest because sin is deceptive. It's so easy to examine ourselves and to examine our lives and say things like, well, I do this, but so-and-so does that, and it's far worse than what I do. It's so easy to examine ourselves and try to compare ourselves to other people, other church members, or maybe non-church members, or other towns. I won't say Hermley's name, but it's easy to compare ourselves to other towns that are more deplorable than us. That was for Ruby. Ruby. That's not what the text tells us to do. It's to examine ourselves on the standard that God gives us. It's to look at our lives. That God has placed you here. He's placed me here. He's given us the Lord's Supper here and now to look at our lives. Not to pass the blame on somebody else or not to push on, well, at least I'm better than so-and-so. That's not the standard we measure against. We measure against the Lord. And here's the good news of the gospel. You and I will never measure up. We're not perfect, and we won't be perfect, and we can't measure up. We're not righteous enough, and we're not good enough, and we're not strong enough, and we're not handsome enough, and we're not all of the things that we feel like we should be to be enough for God. And God says, I know you're not enough. That's why we remember Jesus when we take the Lord's Supper. That our gospel centrality starts with us evaluating our lives and understanding that you and I, though we may not be as bad of sinners as we possibly could be, our sin permeates all aspects of our life. It affects the way we think it affects the way we act it affects our emotions it affects our feelings it affects how we deal with one another it affects all of us and so when we examine ourselves we're not examining ourselves so that we can make ourselves feel perfect and worthy to take the lord's supper we examine ourselves so that we can remind ourselves we need the lord's supper because we need the gospel of jesus christ to save us it's not meant to compound guilt Those who take the Lord's Supper, it's not reserved for those who are perfect. It's for those who love Jesus and hate their sin and want to love him more. Verse 30. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be... Judge, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with uh, the world. Therefore, brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I give instruction about the, uh, this other matters whenever I come. Now, this is an interesting passage to look at, and it's a biblical idea. It just kind of makes us uncomfortable. Paul says this. Well, what is the this? This is the people who are eating Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So this. These people are sick and ill, and many have fallen asleep because of how they've taken the Lord's Supper. So does that mean if you take the Lord's Supper, you're going to catch a cold? Or whatever illness is plaguing us at the moment. Probably the stomach bug or at our house an ear infection. There is biblical evidence to support this, right? In in, in the book of Acts, there's there's four different kinds four different places where people disobeyed God and God either killed people and put them to death or caused them to suffer things so so in Acts chapter 5 verses 4 and 5 if you know the Bible you've heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira where Ananias and Sapphira are are a couple in the early church that they sell some land and then they lie to the disciples when they give the money to church and so Ananias the husband walks in first and this is what Peter tells him in Acts chapter 5 verse 4. Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? Talking about the land. And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have lied. uh, You have not lied to people, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. A few verses later. Sapphira, Ananias' wife, not knowing what had happened, sees this. And then Peter looked at her. Why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look at the feet of those who buried your husband or at the door, and they will carry you out. And instantly she dropped dead at his feet. And when the young men came in, they found her, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. If you go to Acts chapter 12, when we get to the story of Herod, and Herod goes, and he overtakes the city, and he gives this speech when he's overtaking the city, and the people of the city cry out, this isn't the words of a man, this is the words of God when Herod is speaking, and when uh, Herod is speaking in the words of God, he doesn't correct the people, that's his sin here, he doesn't say, I'm not God, he just kind of is like, yeah, that's right, you know, bring it on, let's hear all the, the applause, let's hear all of the things, look at Acts chapter 12, verse 23, and at once the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Acts chapter 13. This is with Paul who wrote the letter to the Corinthians. Paul is out evangelizing. He's sharing the gospel with people and there's this man named uh, Elmias, who is a sorcerer who begins arguing with Paul while he's sharing the gospel. And, and 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 Paul's sharing the gospel with a proconsul, one of the Roman rulers. So in Acts chapter 13 verse 9 it says this, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elmas. And he said, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You're going to be blind and you will not see the sun for a time. And immediately amidst and a darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. The interesting part of that story is in the next verse what we see is the proconsul's like, if your God you're telling me about can do that to him, I'll believe in him. And he converts and becomes a Christian. That we see this idea take place within the scripture, that there is an obedience to God that works out best for you, and disobedience doesn't work out best. So does it mean every time you get sick it's because you've sinned in your life and you've done something against God? No. But does it mean that God will use those things in your life to grow you and push you closer to Jesus? Yes this morning, and I'm reading in my, my Bible. I've got the sermon done. I'm just studying, and I come to John chapter 9, which is a story of the blind man, one of the many blind men that Jesus saved. But in this particular one, this is the blind man who Jesus spits, put mud on his eyes, and then sends him away. Do you know that story? Like, post-COVID, Jesus would be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't he? spits on the dirt, puts the mud on the blind man's eyes, goes, heal yourself at the pool. The blind man walks over to the pool. Everything Jesus does is intentional. It's not accidental. Jesus had healed people before instantly and immediately, but he heals this man this way for this purpose, so that when the blind man sees, he still has not ever seen Jesus. Right? He, he spiritually, he sees the Lord. Spiritually, he believes, but he's never physically seen Jesus with the eyes that Jesus has healed. And so all these people are walking around going, hey, aren't you the blind man who used to have to beg at the gate? And he goes, yes, but somebody came along. His name was Jesus. He healed me. Now I can see. So they take him to the, the, the Jewish people, and they're like, the, 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 the Pharisees, and are like, hey, aren't you the blind man who, who used to sit at the gate? And isn't it a Sabbath? You shouldn't be being healed on the Sabbath. There's a six-day window for healings, and on the seventh day, Jesus can't do them anymore. Uh, and so the blind man says, all I know is I was blind. This dude spit on mud, put it on my eyes. This Jesus I see, I believe in him. So they go to the guy's parents and they say is this your son and the parents are like yeah that's our son he was born blind we don't know why he can see now and the son goes I've told you why I can see it's this really funny story of this back and forth over and over and over again and at the beginning of John chapter 9 all of this starts because the disciples ask Jesus who sinned to make this man blind was it his parents or was it him and what Jesus said was that man's blind for the glory of God and he heals him So Paul is not teaching a version of the prosperity gospel here where he's saying if you'll obey Jesus, if you'll mind, and if you'll give over 10%, then you will have no issues and no problems and you'll be good to go. That's not the biblical gospel. This isn't a works-based gospel that Paul is is saying here either, that if you will do all of these things and climb up this ladder and get your life together and act right, then everything in your physical life is going to go the way that you want it to be. That's not what Paul is saying either. What Paul is saying is God is God, and God will be exalted. Those are facts of our life. Our choice, our belief is in if when God decides to exalt himself, if we get to be with God and go with God as he exalts himself, or if we will be exalted by being punished and God destroying sin. Those are our choices. God will be exalted. It's merely if we're going to be on team God or if we're going to be on not team God. That's the choice we have. And so what Paul is saying, he's saying many of you are sick and ill, and many have, have fallen asleep, is it's a grace that God has given these people. He's saying God is trying to wake you up. He's trying to remind you of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, that you don't want to be eternally destroyed here. Every time in the Bible when death is referred to as sleeping, which happens pretty frequently, it's talking about believers, not unbelievers. And so what Paul is saying is some of you believers are missing the point. You have the gospel, but the way you're living your life is not reflecting it. And so to draw you back to God, to pull you back to Jesus, to help you, God has given you these things to help you examine yourself, to help you understand that what you're doing is wrong. There's sickness, there's illness, and some of you have even died, but if you were properly judging yourself, you wouldn't need this to take place. But because God loves you, you are judged by God. And, and, and here he's not talking about like the, the, the end times eschatological judgment. He's talking about a, a judgment that takes place. It's a discipline. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And, and you have forgotten the exhortation and addresses that addresses you as sons. My son... Do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that the father does not discipline. But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. And later on, however, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is what Paul is saying. That this Lord's Supper that, that God has given us, that he's given this church, is an opportunity for us. That if we regularly take the Lord's Supper, if we take the Lord's Supper often, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, then every time we partake in the Lord's Supper, we're reaffirming the gospel in our lives, which gives us the opportunity to reflect upon ourselves and our sins to look at our brothers and sisters when we come together and to welcome our brothers and sisters when we come to the table, whether we love them right now or whether we don't quite love them right now. (laughs) We like to call them extra grace required. I'm an extra grace required person. But it's interesting that Paul tells them this, right? Maybe your translation says eat with them at the same time. Mine says welcome them. The reason why is because at Corinth there were two groups within the church taking the Lord's Supper. And Paul's saying that's not the way it's supposed to be. It should be one, a unified body. So if anybody's hungry, eat at home so that you're not having this feast while other people are starving. That when you gather together, you don't come under judgment. That you can love your brother and sister better. That you can care for your brother and sister better. That you're not putting unnecessary burdens and unnecessary divisions between you and other church members. Paul says, there's other instructions, but I'll talk to you about those when I come in person, which to me I'd be like, uh uh-oh. We know the things Paul has said. Can you imagine what he didn't say in the letter? The reason why this is important is because sin is deceptive. It creeps into our hearts, it creeps into our minds, it creeps into our thoughts, it creeps into our actions, it creeps into how we think about ourselves, and it creeps into how we think about others. It'll creep into our hearts where we'll think that we're better than we actually are, and we need to be reminded that we're not as great as we think we are. And it also creeps into our hearts and tells us that we're worthless and shameful, that we mean nothing, and that's not the truth either. That's not how God would call us. It's deceptive, and sin leads to judgment always. That's what Paul is getting at here with the Lord's Supper. God disciplines the ones that he loves. This is like the coach that stops yelling at the game, at the players. Or the coach who yells at her husband a lot. She yells at him because she loves him. Morgan yells at me, she's a coach, if you don't get that. So what do we do when we face this examination of ourselves? How do we do this properly? Well, one, we repent of sin. This should be a normal, often practice of Christians. That we should often, daily, be evaluating our lives through the lens of the Scripture, finding where the Lord is showing us indwelling sin that's taking place, and repenting of that sin, first and foremost to the Lord. All sin is ultimately against God. Secondarily to other people, because when we sin, we tend to harm others too. So, you may have been sinned against, or you may have sinned against someone. That sin should be repented of to the Lord and then to the people, and then you turn from it and you grow. So, how do we grow in Christ? We read and we memorize His Word, we pray and we depend on God completely what the Lord's Supper reminds us of is we understand that our circumstances of life are sovereignly given to us by God. It's not an accident that you're here. It's not an accident that I'm here. It's not an accident that we're in Ira. It's not an accident that we rub shoulders and we bump against one another as we do life. That's not an accident. It's God giving you growth, sanctifying you in your life. We can praise God that we have grace and we have mercy that we do not deserve and then we can plead with God to help us show others grace and mercy that they don't deserve and the Lord's Supper reminds us of this because the Lord's Supper is not for people who are perfect if you're perfect you're lying you're not perfect it's for those who are imperfect it's for those who know we're imperfect but we absolutely love Jesus and we want to follow Jesus better and we hate the sin that dwells inside of us so much so that we will evaluate our lives over and over and repent to God over and over and repent to others that we've wronged over and other. because we love Jesus and we hate our sin. That's who the Lord's Supper table is for. It's an opportunity to grow in Christ. It's an opportunity to examine ourselves and make sure our hearts are right. So often with church and with life, we can just get into a routine. We can get into a pattern. We can get into a ditch or a rivet or whatever you want to call it and just kind of coast through life because this is what we always do. And if you don't think so, absolutely so. You sit in the same seats every week. We have this routine that we do, and that's a great thing. It's a good And routines can be helpful and can be good. But sometimes when we get in our routines, we can mindlessly go through the actions of church and not understand why we're doing them. We sing the songs we sing for a purpose and for a reason. I preach the way I preach for a purpose and for a reason. We take the Lord's Supper the way we take the Lord's Supper for a purpose and for a reason. Do not mindlessly just go through the motions. That's not Christianity. Our Buddhism, Hinduism will tell you the way to key, the, the key, the success for life is to clear your mind of anything, right? That's why you, you meditate. That's why you do all of those things is because you have to just get rid of everything within your mind. But that's not what Christianity says. Christianity, says, doesn't have an, don't have an empty mind. I used to have a professor who say just because the tomb was empty doesn't mean your brain should be. Christianity says fill your mind with Christ. Take captive your thoughts. Have the mind of Christ to think biblically. So repent where we need to repent. Turn to Christ where we need to turn to Christ. Forgive others where we need to forgive others because other human beings are not the enemy. The enemy is our sin. And so we recommit the gospel over and over when we do these things. What I like about the Lord's Supper, what I think is so helpful, what the Bible teaches us about the Lord's Supper, is it's kind of like a gauge, it's kind of a meter for us within our life. We're, we were given this uh, little kid's book uh, by, by a couple out of Spur. Uh, there's Christians in Spur, it's crazy. Uh, and they gave us this little book that we've been reading with our kids, and it's like the ABCs of something, I don't know, I'm learning the ABCs, it's great. Uh, on I, which we read last night, it was, uh, they have one Bible verse and then they kind of make up a story to help illustrate it for the kids. And, and the I verse was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. Which, if you know me, I was like, great, just another way to misinterpret this text and make it mean whatever you want it to mean. Right? That's how we take Philippians 4.13. I can do whatever I want to in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. That's not what the text means. And so in the story they illustrate, there's a little girl who's trying to jump rope. But she's not very good at it. And so I'm like, great. She's going to say Philippians 4.13, and she's going to be the world champion jump roper. And the way the text teched it, and it was helpful, and it was helpful for me, and it was helpful for my kids last night to think through it, was she is jumping rope. She's not very good at it, and this other little girl comes up and makes fun of her for not being good at jumping rope. I'm good at jumping rope. You're not good at jumping rope. And the little girl wanted to say this is my favorite part of the whole thing because it was it revealed in my heart the little girl was going to say well i can ride my bike with no training wheels but you can't boom but instead she thought about philippians 4 i can do all things through christ who strengthens me meaning i can also speak a kind word to this little girl probably from Hermely, who's picking on this other girl who jumps rope It was an interesting take. It was an interesting look at it because what the Bible's doing is it's giving us these morals. It's giving us these principles. It's teaching us these things that help us to go through life, right? Philippians 4.13 doesn't mean if you say that verse and you say it better than somebody else, you can jump rope better than them. Or if you pray a better prayer before a football game, then you're going to beat the other team who didn't quite pray as good of a prayer as you prayed, right? That's not what the Bible teaches us. What it teaches us is how to love God. It teaches us how to love our neighbor, how to let those things overflow with one another, especially in the church. And the Lord's Supper does this for us. It's a reminder that God died for our sin. That the God of the universe who spoke everything into creation, nothing exists that came not from God's mouth. There's nothing that God was like, oh, I didn't create this issue. There's not one atom, not one molecule in the entire universe that God is not sovereignly in control of. That Jesus, when he's born, doesn't give up his divinity when he's a baby. He's 100% God, that he's 100% man. So as Jesus is rocking in the manger, not a crib, just a feeding trough, right, as a, a baby, and he could have gone to any family anywhere, and instead he goes to these two poor rural teenagers born in a barn with more animals watching the birth of God than human beings, and he's set in this animal trough, and he's rocking there. At the same time Jesus is doing that, he is completely and fully God, which means he's holding the universe in its place. That's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of doesn't remind us that we're great it doesn't remind us that we're awesome it reminds us that we need a great and awesome god that we need a great and awesome savior and so this is what we do when we gather we don't gather because we're better than all the other people around us we don't gather because we've got our lives together and we don't need all of the nonsense that takes place out there And we gather together because we understand our sin. We understand our depravity. We understand our need. Christians are fundamentally needy people who recognize we cannot do life on our own. We must have someone save us. And so when we gather together, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we check and we make sure we do it in a manner that is worthy of God. Not because it's powerful and mystical and because it's the literal body and the literal blood, that's not what we believe. It's a symbol, right? It's just crackers and it's just, uh, I think it's Welch's, right? We got name brand today, Welch's grape juice. We do it because we know the symbolism that comes with it. We know the care that comes with it. So as we shift and draw near to the Lord's supper table, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, or communion as it's called, the body and the blood of Christ, we need to remember that Jesus instituted this ordinance for us. That it's meant to remind us of the good news of Jesus. It doesn't save anyone. However, it's a special time that Jesus calls us to celebrate. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 says this, Whoever uh, eats, therefore Uh, eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat the bread and drink the cup forever, eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So this is a sacred time for us. It's for believers who have rested their hope on the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So in light of those verses, what I ask is if you are not a believer, you abstain from the Lord's Supper. To you, it's just a little snack. But to believers in Jesus, it's far more. I want to encourage you, if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, hear the gospel, hear that Jesus died in your place, hear that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have a hope, you have a purpose, you have a peace, you have salvation, that the worst thing, your sin, is taken care of by God and you can be with God completely and fully for an eternity. For believers, this is a time for us to examine our hearts so that we can make sure we partake in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. if your heart's not right I would encourage you to repent and if you can't do that or whatever to not take the Lord's Supper right now there's four things I always try to point to when we take the Lord's Supper four directions we look we look to the cross first and foremost The Lord's Supper proclaims to us the salvation that Christ accomplished, finished, and completed on the cross. It proclaims to us a salvation that is not ours to earn, but ours to receive. Second, we look around. It's not a private devotional experience for you and your family. It's not a private devotional experience to take place individually while you sit there and just kind of not look at others. This is meant to be for a church, the same Christ who saved you, saved all the brothers and sisters seated with you. And so we rejoice that in gaining Christ as a savior, we gain his people as a family. Third, we look ahead. It's an appetizer. It's a foretaste. There is a coming feast that when Jesus comes back, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And fourth, look inwardly and look back to the cross. It's not a time for compounding guilt. If that's how you feel, if it makes you feel like that's, that's missing the point of the Lord's Supper completely, it's not a time for you to say, well, I'm not perfect, so I'm not going to take the Lord's Supper. That's not what the Lord's Supper is about. It's for imperfect people who recognize our imperfection and trust in Jesus completely and fully. That's who the Lord's Supper is for, because it proclaims to us that our debt is gone, that our, our guilt is gone, that our debt is paid, that our punishment is taken, that our sins are forgiven. That's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's about Jesus. And it's been given to us by God for us, for our good, and for God's glory. So, what I want to do is invite those who are going to serve the Lord's Supper to come on up. going to pray, and then we'll distribute the elements.